0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War Podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 84th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Last week, we started to look at Union and Confederate foreign relations during the Civil War. We said that early in the conflict, in 1861, in the realm of diplomacy, it was a widely held Southern belief that Britain and France were certain to intervene or mediate on behalf of the Confederacy, because of the dependence of their textile industries on Southern cotton. But as y'all already know, this reliance on King cotton diplomacy was a mistake, and ultimately the South will fail in its bid to secure foreign mediation or active intervention during the Civil War.
2: And we said that William H. Seward, as Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State, was the man in Washington primarily responsible for the conduct of Union diplomacy during the Civil War. Seward responded to the apparent threat of European intervention by adopting a firm, even threatening, posture. Historians, depending on how much credit they choose to give Seward for deterring European intervention, have interpreted his policies as either shrewd and tough or dangerous and reckless.
0: This week, Rich and I will look at the Trent Affair, which occurred when Lieutenant Donald Fairfax of the USS San Jacinto removed the Confederate envoys James Mason and John Slidell from the British mail steamer Trent, triggering a major international incident that brought the United States and Britain to the brink of war.
2: At the end of the last episode, we said that in the late summer of 1861, Jefferson Davis, disappointed by the ineffectiveness of the three southern emissaries already sent to Europe, Davis decided to dispatch two special commissioners to Britain and France to carry on the Confederacy's diplomatic effort. The new Confederate commissioners were James Mason of Virginia and John Slidell of Louisiana. Both men were former U.S. Senators. Mason, who was to go to London, had focused most of his time in the Senate on foreign policy matters, having obtained the chairmanship of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee in 1851. Slidell, who was to go to Paris, had some previous minor diplomatic experience attempting to negotiate with Mexico during the Mexican-American War. That mission had failed, though, and his main qualification for this posting to France was that he spoke French.
0: Mason and Slidell, along with their secretaries James McFarland and George Eustace, as well as members of Slidell's family, boarded a ship in Charleston, South Carolina, and on October twelfth eighteen sixty one, under cover of rain and darkness, the ship successfully slipped through the blockade and headed for Nassau in the Bahamas. The men had planned to sail from Charleston on the Nashville, a blockade-runner, but they ended up leaving on the Gordon, a shallow draft coastal packet instead. After reaching the open sea in order to confuse prowling federal warships, the Gordon's name was changed to the Theodora. During their two-day voyage to Nassau on the Gordon-slash-Theodora, James Mason wrote, Here we are on the deep blue sea, clear of all the Yankees. We ran the blockade in splendid style.
2: The Southerners had hoped to book passage on a British ship after reaching the Bahamas, but not finding a British ship at Nassau, they continued on to Cuba. When they reached Cuba, though, Mason and Slidell found that they'd have to wait several weeks for the arrival of the Trent, a British steamship that made regular runs across the Atlantic carrying mail. While the Confederates waited for the Trent's arrival, the federal government reacted to rumors that the Southerners had escaped from Charleston on a blockade runner, the Nashville. Not realizing that Mason and Slidell had changed their plans and left Charleston on another ship, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells ordered that a fast warship be sent toward Britain to intercept the Nashville. And so on October 15th, the same day Mason and Slidell steamed within sight of Cuba on the Gordon Theodora, the USS James Adger sailed toward Europe with orders to pursue the Confederate blockade runner Nashville all the way to the English Channel if necessary. Of course, since the Nashville had never actually left Charleston, the James Adger reached England in early November and docked in Southampton Harbor after crossing the Atlantic on a wild goose chase.
0: And so it was to be another Federal warship, the USS San Jacinto, cruising in Cuban waters that was destined to intercept the two Confederate commissioners. The San Jacinto was commanded by 62-year-old Captain Charles Wilkes. Early in his career, Wilkes had won accolades for voyages of discovery to Antarctica and the Fiji Islands, but he was described as obstinate, arrogant, and short-tempered, and Wilkes was popular neither with his fellow officers nor with the sailors under his command. He had burned down a village in the Fiji Islands when some of the local inhabitants stole some items from his exploring expedition, and Wilkes treated his own sailors little better. He was known as a strict disciplinarian, and he had been court-martialed in 1842 for illegally punishing sailors. He was acquitted but publicly reprimanded. Wilkes' displays of temper and episodes of insubordination meant that his superiors eventually trusted him with nothing more than a desk in Washington. But after the start of the Civil War, when experienced officers were in short supply in the rapidly expanding Navy, he was sent out to take command of a steam-powered frigate, the San Jacinto, which he was simply to bring home for refitting. But as Howard Jones explains in his book... Blue and Gray Diplomacy, A History of Union and Confederate Foreign Relations, Quote, In a characteristic act of independent judgment, Wilkes ignored Washington's orders to head for Philadelphia in late August 1861 and proceeded instead to African waters in search of Confederate privateers. Once there, he heard that Confederate commerce raiders were roaming the West Indies and immediately changed course for the Caribbean. From Cuban newspapers, he learned that Mason and Slidell intended to depart Havana on board the British mail packet Trent. This would not happen on his watch, Wilkes so determined.
2: While waiting for the Southerners to depart Havana on the Trent, Captain Wilkes correctly concluded he could legally search the British mail packet once she left Spanish territorial waters and then seize her if she were carrying Confederate dispatches. In fact, back during the Napoleonic Wars, a British admiralty court had specifically ruled that ships carrying enemy dispatches were subject to capture. After stopping the Trent, if he found such dispatches on board, Wilkes would then have to take the British ship, a neutral vessel, to a federal prize court, where the court could condemn the Trent and its cargo. But Wilkes wanted to do more than that. He wanted to take Mason and Slidell into custody. But since detaining the Confederate commissioners as they traveled between two neutral ports on a neutral ship was an altogether different proposition, legally, than seizing the Trent, Wilkes sought a way to justify what he intended to do. In the time he had before the British mail packet sailed from Havana, Wilkes searched through his books on maritime law, but, as Howard Jones writes, quote, he was disappointed with his findings. Mason and Slidell, Wilkes admitted, were not dispatches in the literal sense, and did not seem to come under that designation, and nowhere could I find a case in point. But suddenly he found the way. Wilkes reasoned that the two agents were bent on mischievous and traitorous errands against our country, and, in a strikingly novel interpretation, termed them the embodiment of dispatches, hence contraband and subject to seizure. In other words, Wilkes realized he could seize the Trent and take her to a prize court if she were carrying enemy dispatches, but he really didn't have a leg to stand on as far as removing Mason and Slidell from the British ship. So, to justify what he intended to do, He decided to take the two men into custody based on his uh, idea that the men could be considered the embodiment of dispatches.
0: The Trent left Havana on November 7th, and the next day she was intercepted by the San Jacinto about 10 miles offshore in the old Bahama Channel. The mail packet unfurled the Union Jack as she steamed toward the Federal warship and Wilkes responded by firing a shot well in front of the Trent's bow. When the British ship did not slow down, Wilkes ordered that a shot be dropped just in front of the little steamer. That brought the Trent to a stop. Wilkes put Lieutenant Donald Fairfax in charge of the boarding party that headed for the British ship. Wilkes' orders to Fairfax were, quote, "...should Mr. Mason, Mr. Slidell, Mr. Eustace, and Mr. McFarlane be on board, make them prisoners, and send them on board this ship immediately, and take possession of the Trent as a prize." End quote. Besides the Confederate commissioners and their secretaries, Fairfax was also to seize any diplomatic papers he found.
2: As Fairfax's boarding party rowed toward the Trent, Mason had McFarland give the Southerners' dispatch bag to the British mail agent, who locked it in the mail room and promised to deliver it to London. Once Lieutenant Fairfax reached the Trent and boarded her, he encountered opposition from the mail packet's defiant captain, James Moore. An outraged Moore insulted Fairfax and denied the Yankees' right to search the British ship. As Moore angrily confronted Fairfax some of the Trent's 60 passengers, many of whom were Southerners, broke into raucous applause and shouted for Fairfax to be thrown overboard.
0: Lieutenant Fairfax, who was already convinced Captain Wilkes was rashly precipitating an international incident, was discombobulated by the commotion and in the confusion did not follow orders. Denied the right to search the vessel, Fairfax decided against trying to search the mail packet by force, And he certainly wasn't going to attempt to take control of the British ship, but he did order that Mason and Slidell and their two secretaries be seized. And so after some pushing and shoving, the four Confederates were taken off the Trent and became prisoners on the San Jacinto.
2: In the tense encounter between the San Jacinto and the Trent, neither the American naval officers nor Captain Moore displayed a good grasp of international maritime law. Fairfax blundered by not following orders and seizing the Trent, and choosing instead to just take off the four Southerners. And then once Fairfax was back on board the San Jacinto, it's a bit puzzling as to why Wilkes would accept Fairfax's excuses and simply allow the Trent to steam away. As for the captain of the British ship, despite his argument to the contrary, the Americans actually had every right to stop and search the Trent. By denying them that right, Moore provided the Americans with perfect justification to seize his ship. And then the mail agent of the Trent also erred by agreeing to hide the Confederate emissary's dispatch bag and promising to deliver it to London. On these grounds, a federal prize court would certainly, and correctly, have condemned the Trent and its cargo.
0: But a prize court could only rule on property, not persons, so Mason and Slidell would have gone free regardless. In fact, according to international custom, as the civilian representatives of a belligerent power, the two Southerners possessed the diplomatic immunity given to such envoys. So the bottom line is that although Wilkes would have been perfectly justified in seizing the Trent itself, he had no right to arrest the Confederate commissioners who were aboard a neutral vessel on a voyage between two neutral ports.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
2: So Lieutenant Fairfax somehow managed to convince Wilkes that he had acted judiciously, and Wilkes allowed the Trent to steam away. The San Jacinto, with Mason and Slidell and their two secretaries aboard, sailed northward, putting in for coal at Fort Monroe on November 15th. From there, Wilkes telegraphed Washington and informed his superiors of what had transpired. After coaling at Fort Monroe, the San Jacinto continued northward to Boston, where Wilkes was ordered to deliver the four Southerners to Fort Warren on November 24th.
0: As for the reaction on both sides of the Atlantic to the news of Wilkes' action, in his book, Fateful Lightning, A New History of the Civil War and Reconstruction, Alan Gelso writes that, quote, Northern public opinion was at first jubilant at Wilkes's daring pinch of the two Confederate emissaries, and Congress voted to grant Wilkes a gold medal. The British government was substantially less enthused. An unarmed British ship flying the British flag had been fired upon, stopped, and boarded by an American war vessel, and four passengers had been hauled off without so much as a by-your-leave. The deck of a ship is considered an extension of the territory of the nation under whose flag it flies, and so Wilkes might as well have sailed up the Thames and kidnapped four diplomats right off the docks, end quote. As we've already said, the matter, legally, was a bit more confusing and complicated than Gelso indicates there, but that passage does do a nice job of capturing the British and American public's perception of what happened. When the news of Wilkes' action broke, the northern public was delighted that not only had he captured the Confederate commissioners, but he had also given a sharp twist to the tale of the British lion. In England, though, the news aroused indignation and fury, since it was assumed that Wilkes had not been acting on his own initiative, but that the seizure of the Southerners and the insult to the British flag was a deliberate decision of the Lincoln administration.
2: Because the transatlantic telegraph cable wasn't working at this time, news of the incident with the Trent didn't reach London until November 27th. But when the news did arrive, Lord Palmerston, the British Prime Minister, called an emergency meeting of the Cabinet. From the information on hand, it appeared that Captain Wilkes had committed an illegal act by seizing passengers but not taking the Trent as a prize. And, as Tracy just mentioned, it was assumed that no American naval officer would do such a thing on his own initiative but that Washington had ordered him to do so. When the Palmerston government received dispatches from Lord Lyons the British minister in Washington, reporting that the northern public was overjoyed at Wilkes' action and that Lincoln and Seward had failed to immediately disavow Wilkes' actions, well, London interpreted that to mean the United States wanted war.
0: Many Britons viewed the incident with the Trent as the culmination of an American foreign policy that sought to compensate for defeats at home with bullying abroad. And now, although the British government didn't relish the prospect of a conflict with the United States, it had to prepare for one. War seemed unavoidable. British pride was at stake. An American living in London observed, quote, There never was within living memory such a burst of feeling. The people are frantic with rage, and were the country polled, I fear 999 men out of a thousand would declare for immediate war, end quote. Another American living in Britain noted, quote, I have never seen so intense a feeling of indignation exhibited in my life, end quote. At the emergency cabinet meeting on November 28th, the prime minister was furious. Palmerston reportedly opened the meeting by declaring, quote, I don't know whether you are going to stand this, but I'll be damned if I do, end quote. To Russell, the Foreign Secretary, Palmerston insisted the government would not shrink before this, quote, deliberate and premeditated insult, end quote. Other members of the cabinet also believed war inescapable, even the Duke of Argyle, a supporter of the Union's war against the Confederacy, told his colleagues that he believed Wilkes's action was a gross violation of international law and had surely been instigated by the arrogant American Secretary of State, Seward.
2: Amid this initial wave of intense indignation igni- over the incident with the Trent, the British cabinet drafted two dispatches to be sent to Lord Lyons in Washington. The first dispatch, which Lyons was to deliver to the Americans, called for the return of Mason and Slidell to British protection and a complete apology from the Lincoln government. The second message instructed Lyons to inform Seward that he had seven days to respond to the British note, and gave Lyons the authority to determine if the Americans' response was satisfactory. If Lyons found the response to be inadequate, He was to leave the United States, along with the British Embassy staff and archives.
0: But on November 30th, when the documents were sent to Queen Victoria for her signature, Prince Albert, the Queen's ailing husband, studied the ultimatum throughout the night of the 30th and into the early morning hours of Sunday, December 1st. For what happened during those hours, Americans owe a debt of gratitude to the Prince Consort. Albert, who would be dead in just two weeks' time, decided to soften the provocative tone of the cabinet's message. Despite being so weak he could hardly hold his pen, he spent that night poring over the dispatches and eliminated passages that would have backed the Lincoln administration into a corner. The prince consort deliberately left the Americans a loophole that would allow them to back down but still save face. War with the United States, Prince Albert believed, was definitely not in Britain's best interests.
2: The dispatches were sent on their way to Washington on December 1st, as soon as Queen Victoria returned them to the cabinet. While Palmerston's government waited for the United States' reply, more than 11,000 British soldiers left for Canada to reinforce the 4,300 regulars already stationed there. Even with the additional troops on their way across the Atlantic, London fully expected to lose most of Canada in the event of war, but the British hoped to use their navy to strike a massive, decisive blow against the United States at sea. The Admiralty sent 15 warships to Vice Admiral Sir Alexander Milne, commander of the North American Station, giving him a force of 40 vessels. Milne planned to attack and destroy the Federal's blockading squadrons along the southern coast before implementing a blockade of his own against northern ports. Meanwhile, other British naval units around the globe would hunt down American merchant ships.
0: In our era of almost instant communications and 24-hour news channels, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around the fact that in December 1861, with the transatlantic cable broken, It would take about two weeks for the British dispatches to reach Lord Lyons in Washington, and then once he delivered the ultimatum to Seward, if the Lincoln administration took the full seven days to reply, there would be a further two weeks to wait beyond the end of the deadline before news of Washington's answer reached London. It all meant a lot of waiting, but in the meantime, Palmerston's government prepared for war.
2: Meanwhile, in Washington, Lincoln and Seward had adopted a wait-and-see policy, hoping they could hold on to the Confederate commissioners without risking war with Britain. But on December 18th, Lord Lyons received his government's demands. Lyons wisely decided to tactfully, carefully give Seward an informal, cautionary heads-up as to the dispatch's contents. Seward was alarmed by the British government's stance and requested that Lyons delay the formal presentation of the demands. Lyons, acting with great discretion, agreed, and it wasn't until the 23rd that he formally presented the British government's demands to the American Secretary of State. But once the British minister formally presented his government's demands on the 23rd, the clock was ticking. The Americans had seven days to reply,
0: The day after Lyons presented their British demands, Seward was at a dinner party at the Portuguese embassy, and probably physically and mentally exhausted, and certainly fueled by too much brandy, the Secretary of State launched into a tirade against England. The climax of his highly charged remarks came when he proclaimed, quote, We will wrap the whole world in flames, end quote. One of the stunned witnesses of Seward's outburst was William Howard Russell, the Times of London's famous war correspondent. That evening, Russell wrote that Seward faced the, quote, very painful dilemma, end quote, of either bearing the humiliation of yielding to Britain or becoming the author of a disastrous foreign war.
2: Abraham Lincoln called for a special cabinet meeting on Christmas Day To explore the possibilities of preserving both peace and honor in resolving the crisis before the December thirtieth deadline. At that meeting, it was, wonder of wonders, Seward who was the voice of restraint and caution. He had consulted with General McClellan, and McClellan had advised Seward that the United States was in no position to fight both the Confederacy and the British. And so, despite his outburst at the Portuguese Embassy, the Secretary of State realized that in the midst of the ongoing conflict with the rebellious southern states, war with Britain wasn't a viable option for America. Seward was always happy to talk up war with a European power, but when the reality was staring him in the face, he knew he had to back down. The President, however, was ever sensitive to northern public opinion and knowing that the people had been clamoring for the administration to uphold the country's honor by resisting the British demands and keeping Mason and Slidell in captivity, Lincoln was unconvinced by Seward's argument. Still the lawyer, the president asked Seward to put his case in writing, he, Lincoln, would do the same, and they would put forth their respective arguments at another cabinet meeting the next day.
0: Seward pretty much stayed up all night, feverishly writing and putting his argument against war with Britain onto paper, but then at the four-hour cabinet meeting the next day, the president surprisingly offered no objection to the release of the Southerners. After the meeting concluded, a relieved but confused Seward stayed behind after the other cabinet members had left, and he asked about Lincoln's change of mind. The president smiled and told his secretary of state, quote, I found that I could not make an argument that would satisfy my own mind, and that proved to me your ground was the right one.
2: On December 27th, Seward informed the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee of the President's decision to release the Confederate Commissioners. The congressmen and senators received the news without enthusiasm, but they, like most Americans actually, had reconciled themselves to surrendering Mason and Slidell. You see, once the British demands were known, most Northerners, upon sober reflection, had come to the same conclusion as Abraham Lincoln, that war with both the Confederacy and Britain was a dawning proposition and to be avoided if at all possible.
0: On that same day, December 27th, Seward presented Lyons with the Lincoln administration's official response, a long, badly written note by the Secretary of State whose contents were intended primarily for domestic consumption. Although it was no apology, the accommodating Lyons deemed the American response satisfactory. Lyons' report reached London on January eighth, 1862. The Foreign Secretary, Russell, accepted Seward's note and on January 10th wrote to Lyons that he considered the case closed. He said, quote, Bearing in mind the friendly relations which have long subsisted between Great Britain and the United States, we are willing to believe that the United States naval officer who committed this aggression was not acting in compliance with any authority from his government or that if he conceived himself to be so authorized, he greatly misunderstood the instructions which he had received."
2: The British actually had a mixed reaction to the news that the Lincoln government would release the Confederates. The news that the Americans had met the British demands was celebrated, while the Americans' justification, which Seward disguised in a haze of legalities, was not. But cooler heads, such as the Times correspondent William Howard Russell and some members of Palmerston's government, did not regret the Trent affair. They realized that Seward's previous aggressive policy of intimidation had been exposed as empty rhetoric, and that one could argue the entire episode had made it possible for the United States and Britain to now cooperate and build upon the various reasons both sides had for avoiding war. As Philip D. Myers notes in his book, Caution and Cooperation, The American Civil War and British-American Relations, quote, The short-lived war cries were diffused by the long-standing realism of both governments. In the midst of the crisis, the hard-pressed Lincoln avowed that one war at a time was enough, and by that point Congress, Parliament, and politicians in the North and Britain supported the settlement, end quote.
0: On the first day of 1862, Mason and Slidell were removed from Fort Warren and boarded a British warship at Provincetown, Massachusetts. They eventually reached Southampton on January 29th. Once they arrived in London and Paris in 1862, the Confederate envoys attempted to do what their predecessors had failed to accomplish, that is, persuade the British and French governments to grant official recognition of the Confederacy and break the Union blockade. But in Paris, Slidell heard the familiar story that the French were prepared to recognize the Confederacy, but because of the overall situation in Europe, France would not act unless Britain took the lead. And in London, the Foreign Secretary agreed to meet Mason unofficially, but Lord Russell's attitude was so clearly discouraging that Mason did not even press the question of recognition.
2: Although Southern newspapers ridiculed the Yankees for knuckling under to the British, The truth was that after the Trent Affair, the Confederacy was just as far away as ever from receiving international recognition as a nation. As for Charles Wilkes, his time in the public limelight proved to be short-lived. Gideon Wells considered Wilkes to be an embarrassment to the U.S. Navy, but Wilkes still enjoyed the support of influential politicians, so he was promoted and accepted the command of a flotilla on the James River. But after disobeying an order, he was transferred to the West Indies. Further acts of insubordination there led to his being court-martialed and suspended from duty. As for the San Jacinto, she was wrecked off the Bahamas on January 1, 1865, and six years later, her hulk was sold at auction.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is the book Rich mentioned a moment ago, Caution and Cooperation, The American Civil War in British-American Relations, by Philip E. Myers.
2: Yeah, Myers' take on this subject is thought-provoking, since he makes a compelling case that relations between the United States and Britain during the Civil War were never quite as desperate as most historians have portrayed them to be. But anyway, you can check out his book and decide the merits of his argument for yourself. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
0: And then as we wrap things up, Rich and I want to be sure to thank David M. from Surrey in the UK and Skip K. in Florida for their donations. Thanks, guys.
2: Later on in the podcast, we'll return to the subject of foreign relations and the possibility of British and French intervention, and at some point we'll also cover the construction of Confederate commerce raiders in Britain, but that'll all be sometime down the road in our story. Next week, Tracy and I will have that big year-in-review episode for you when we take a look back at what all happened in 1861, and we've been looking forward to this episode. In fact, we'd like to do this at the end of each year of the war, so we'll see how this one goes, but we hope you guys enjoy it. Right now it looks like episode 85 will be our longest show to date. We thought of dividing it up into two episodes, but we decided we wanted to cover it all in one shot, so expect it to be well over an hour. Yikes. Anyway, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.